Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 234. And this one was recorded on July 4th here in Maryland, in Warwick, Maryland. I recorded with Jason Crook. Jason runs the Bohemia Apiary. So he's a beekeeper and he produces honey. But this isn't just about honey. At first, I kind of thought it was. But Jason is so incredibly knowledgeable about bees that he taught me so much in this episode. So I was really fortunate that I was able to drive out to his home and to see his whole setup, his bee colonies, his production. It's incredible. He's a wealth of resources and knowledge. He runs courses on beekeeping. I was really fortunate that I was able to link up with him. And I left with some honey, which I'm really excited about. And I got to sample a bit of honey there um, that I think think he was telling me was like um, pumpkin seeds. Uh, it tasted like like pure candy. It was amazing. So this was really cool. I'll throw some uh, videos up in Insta stories and stuff like that and maybe throw something up on YouTube so that you can see some videos I took from his, uh, from his property. But he also has a really fantastic YouTube channel and there's a lot of education that goes on in his YouTube channel. So if you go to the description for this episode and with a, which whatever app you're listening to this in, you can check out his YouTube and his website and his social media accounts and stuff like that. Uh, but for now, enjoy this conversation with Jason. I hope that you take a lot away from it because I sure did. All right, cool. Well, first of all, Many thank yous. Uh, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me out here. It's really beautiful. And uh, it's a treat whenever I get to go to someone's house or their place of work or where they do their thing. So this is really cool for me. So thanks, man. Oh, welcome. welcome. We were chatting just a little bit here <clears throat> before we started, but um, are you originally from this area? So when I was younger, yes. So Cecil County, Maryland is kind of where I grew up. And then, you know, Delaware as well. I, we moved to Delaware when I was probably about... 10 or 15, I guess, and then in that, that, that age group. And I've um, been in Delaware most of my life until I moved back in 2013 to Cecil County. So maybe people would know, like, Eastern Shore. Is that fair to say, like, this yeah, is part yeah, of the yeah. Eastern Shore? So Eastern Shore, so I, I, as much as I lived in Delaware and Kent County, Delaware, and that area, um, I just always say that I'm from the Eastern Shore of Maryland. That's pretty much where I grew up. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. yeah. So I've been actually looking for a while now in like New York City and I thought that I maybe would be able to find someone in close proximity to like Long Island that has been, you know, raising bees or making honey. Mm -hmm. uh, I never even knew the term was an apiary. Mm -hmm. um, so it's something that I've been looking into for a little bit and so I was really excited to find you here. But I'm assuming maybe this isn't a craft that started early in life like you had like a different career trajectory right oh, absolutely yeah and it's, it's not my full-time career mm. I actually have a full-time job and um I I just started the apiary about six years ago um it was an interesting sort of an interesting story and 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 actually you had mentioned you know New York and Long Island I do have uh the irony and it is the couple or family that lived in this home prior to us daughter is going to New York now for nursing and on the side, she's actually working with a um, a guy that does urban beekeeping on rooftops in New York. Okay. So it's you know definitely a kind of a weird small world. And when they moved out of here, we've kept in contact and such, and uh, and they do that too. So I, you know beekeeping in general kind of transcends anywhere you're at. I mean location is important, but um, you know this this hobby of mine, and you know I have a, a cliche that I say on my YouTube videos and things like that is. It's more than a hobby, right? It's mm. an obsession because it, it quickly became an obsession for me. Uh, I started in 2000 and, like I said, 2015, just dabbling into trying to understand uh, beekeeping. And, you know, I, I, to be to be uh, honest with you, I, I saw something called on a Kickstarter campaign. So you're familiar with Kickstarter? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Kickstarter had a really neat thing that they had put out uh, called a flow hive. And, and that flow hive was basically, it, it was a reemergence of a, of a kind of a concept that's something that was invented back in the early 1900s and sort of a sketch sketch patent. And the patent, I don't know if it expired or what have you, but these two Australian guys picked up the concept of being able to take a unit 
and put it on a beehive, allow you to, the bees to make honey, store honey, and for you to not disturb the bees and tap, basically get honey on tap mm. is the concept. And and when I saw it being kind of, you know, in, on the acreage we have here, I thought, you know, I can keep bees in my backyard. That's pretty fat. I can get honey on tap. Who doesn't like honey, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, that was what turned me on to the, the concept of research and looking at bees. Um, and I thought, yeah, I want to do my part as well. I'm going to have a garden. They can help pollinate my garden and all the things that bees were known for. Well, then I started doing some reading and research and my eyes really, you know, eyes wide open, right? I mean, it's the, it's amazing some of the things that, you know, bees are, what they do, what they do for us, what they do for, um, you know, really just, and, and they're, they're not, they're not doing well in some regards. Um, there's a lot of um, media out there saying the bees are dying, the bees are dying. And while that's true, um, I think it's more of a reaction to the necessity of having bees. Mm. And I think deep down people, most people realize w- what their role is in our livelihood, um, but maybe they don't, or maybe they do in that, that kind of reaction to, hey, if indeed the bees did die off, right, um, what would happen to us? And we want to make sure that we do our best to make sure the pollinators are protected, the bees are protected. So doing that research is what really kind of got me so much more you know, passion into it than just this little Kickstarter campaign thing that I involve myself in. So that's kind of the, the highest level um, overview of how I got involved. Yeah, it's interesting because I was just thinking that when you're, there's almost like a stigma with bees because when you're a, a kid, bees are terrifying. Like every kid has seen the movie My Girl <laughs> where like the boy is allergic to bees and gets stung and dies and it's like, oh my God, you don't want to get stung by a bee in the pool. But they are something that's entirely vital to our ecosystem. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think it's, and, I, and I, I might quote a couple facts here that just through my research and reading that, you know, I necessarily need to cite because I probably don't have that uh, in that. But essentially, the it's two, it's less than 2% of the population or the, the, the of our population, at least, that are actually anaphylactic allergic to bees. Ah. Most people get stung, they swell. I still swell. And, and I get the question all the time, hey, do you get stung? Do you get stung? Yeah, I get stung all the time. Does it hurt? Yeah, it absolutely hurts. It's a bee sting, right? But the key is, is that, um, you know, bees are, are vital to what we need them for. And we need people, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but we need backyard beekeepers like myself to balance that. Mm. Um, I think the, the notion that, you know, bees do that what they do. Um, but they need to do it on a scale that we need them to do it on. So there's pollinators everywhere, right? So there's bumblebees and there's butterflies and there's sweat bees and wasps and hornets and and honeybees, like some feral colonies. The problem is, is that we have a society that relies upon mass agriculture to eat, right? We need a volume of food to eat, not just a small backyard garden. We're dependent upon that mass agricultural system. And in a lot of those crops that are consumed by us for more of the food side, not as much for the necessity side. So like, for example, corn is tassel pollinated. It doesn't need bees to, to pollinate it, nor does really soy. And those are pretty common crops that you see mass agriculture around, at least on the East Coast and, and going out Midwest. So you're thinking, yourself, well, bees don't pollinate them. What's, why are they important? Well, the other 90% of the crops that are out there that we eat, whether it's the nuts, the fruits, the berries, whatever, are pollinated by mm. bees. And people don't realize that. You've heard the term, you know, no farms, no food, right? Well, it's really no bees, no farms, no food. That's really the, the, the way it should be said. Because the bees that travel around this country by the thousands on truckloads through commercial beekeeping um, are doing that first step. They're pollinating to create that flower or create that, that fruit from that flower. Without that process, really two-thirds of our food supply would just diminish, disappear. Whoa. So yeah. it, let's say we're in some dystopian future where, yeah, there are no bees. Is there no way to do an artificial pollination, I guess? Um, I think that there's there's been studies that I've seen. I mean, I've seen some things on the internet related to, you know, small microbes, uh, robots, you know, kind of yeah. <laughs> pollination. There's actually hand pollination. There's a lot of uh, people that walk along and do hand pollinations in some countries. Um, and it's, it's, it's going to need to be done, but you cannot do it on the scale that, uh, you know, if you have, you know, 500 acres or a thousand acres of almonds, right. To hand pollinate every flower or to build a, a, a network of these smaller little mini bee drones or whatever we would call them to do that. I think the, it, it wouldn't be as efficient mm. and there's something that's efficient just about nature doing its natural ability, right? So for, for there's things that we can automate and there's things that we can do better in our own mind with technology, 
But if you really sit down and look at it, technology sometimes becomes more of a burden than it becomes a benefit. And we have to balance that. Mm. I mean, that's what I think that's my perspective on it. I mean, whether they can create something to solve a problem in the future that may come around, I don't know. Um, but right now, we need the bees. So. You mentioned a lot of things there that I'll unpack in a minute or in a few minutes. But I'm curious about your your interest in bees and you have the land. Like, what is the what is the first step to making all of this happen? Like, how, how do you build how do you this get up? Bees? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that that's the that's a very common question for someone who's not a beekeeper. And I, it was the question, same question I asked. I mean, because I I subscribed to that Kickstarter campaign. I got my beehive. My Kickstarter beehive was the first beehive I ever owned. Just sat in my office and I looked at it going, how the hell do I get bees? <laughs> yeah. I have no idea how to get bees. So I started to read and research and I realized that, you know, bees are started in a couple different ways, right? So you can get a package of bees in the mail. You can actually get bees shipped to you in the mail. Three pounds of bees with a queen in a cage, Whoa. in a box. Uh, and they do that very common in the very in part of the spring across the whole U.S. Uh, a lot of them come off the back end of the... Um, the commercial pollination route. So you figure a lot of those bees that are coming through that commercial pollination route because they never stop on that route. They're usually going from one crop to the next crop to the next crop, which is a whole other discussion that I could to your uh, unpack, I guess, if we wanted to, right? Because that's really why the bees are stressed and why they're dying. So when you ask the question, Jason, are the bees dying? I said, yeah, they're dying because we have to eat. They're like they're, us. They're, they're, they're overworked. They're, they're <laughs> overworked. They're overstressed, wow. and and they, but they need to do their job to make to, to that support that mass agricultural system. But on the back end of that, what they end up doing is taking the hives that are strong when they get to the certain point, and and shake them into a box, and essentially um, put a queen in it, a mated queen, and ship them all around the country to backyard beekeepers or sideline beekeepers to continue to sustain their apiary, and really that's the balance that I think that I bring to the process is that my bees don't travel across the country. I mean, there may be a point in time when I ever grow my apiary to 500 to 1,000 hives, and I may want to send some of them just because of the, the revenue you can get for commercial pollination is much greater than just your backyard beekeeping, making honey, you know, making bees here locally. But I support my community around the area, selling packages, selling nucleus colonies, we call them, mating queens and honey and wax and everything else that goes along with equipment, things like that, so... Uh, but yeah, it's it. That's I mean, that's literally how I got into getting into bees. Was I bought that Kickstarter campaign hive, the Flow Hive, and then figured out how to get bees. And then once I got bees, I said, well, I've got to have two beehives, right? Not just one. And then I bought a standard equipment setup, a traditional we call it a Langstroth hive. And that Langstroth hive is traditional beekeeping. There are several other styles of beekeep beehives, but that box that Reverend Langstroth designed, that concept of the removable frame and, and, and identifying what they call bee space, which is the space between the frames. Mm. That is really what he sort of patented to in order to help beekeepers manage their hives better. Prior to that, it was uh, bee skeps and other types of things. Like if you see the the one thing I have on my shelf over there, is like, it looks like a dome of, of straw. And that's uh, that you see those in pictures of old style beekeeping, and that that's a model, but that's really if that, imagine that like four times its size or three times its size. That's how they used to keep bees. Um, they would put the queen up inside that little basket, and they would build comb out. The problem is, is when you needed to harvest the honey and or the wax, you had to cut the whole thing out. You destroy the hive. There's no way that you couldn't. Um, and but that's that's why Reverend Langstraw came up with the removable frame and various other uh, types of processes. I know I'm going all over the place on this. But no, no, I love it. it concept. What Jason is describing is that sort of like dome-like structure. It, this is going to sound very silly, but it like sort of like what you would envision, like Winnie the Pooh, like Correct. pulling off of the tree, right? Yeah. Um, is there a certain like ratio of how many bees per queen there would be in a colony? That's, that's another good question. So going back to why we use honeybees to pollinate. So why not bumblebees? Why not butterflies? Why not something else? So the, the dynamic of a honeybee colony is very interesting in that there isn't really a cap that a honeybee colony could stop at. And that's both in its resources, its stores, its, its bees, whatever it may be. Bees just continue to propagate, right? They continue to grow based on the, the, the size of the cavity they're in. Okay. Really, that's what it comes down to. Um, and, a, and in a scenario where you have a flow, or we call it a nectar flow, is that they'll continue to keep harvesting, you know, nectar for honey and pollen. Um, you know, nectar is their carbohydrate and pollen is their protein uh, for their brood. They use it for, not for us, which is ironic, right? The honey's not for us, as you obviously would think. 
it's for their brood. It's to feed their young. And in that colony, there can be in a standard size Langstroth hive that you may see on the side of the road where you have, you know, a standard box and another box or two on top, anywhere from 40 to 60,000 bees on average, on average, you know, up, upwards and down. Uh, one queen, though. One queen and 40 to 60,000 bees are in this colony um, at any given point at the height of, and that kind of branches off onto a couple other things, which when I say that, you know, they fill the cavity to the size that they can fill the cavity if there's a nectar flow and they can, you know, the, the queen will lay up to 2,000 eggs a day. Whoa. So she will, yeah, so she will fill that colony pretty quickly with, uh, with brood. And, and in order to propagate the future generation of the, of the actual colony, the queens live anywhere from, you know, two to three years on average. Um, some shorter, depending on how you're managing your hive. But 90% of those bees in that colony um, only live about 45 days. That's a fact that most people don't know. They're thinking the bee they see flying on that flower is actually at the end of its life. That's the normal lifespan? That's or the normal lifespan of a honeybee, 45 oh. days. So, you know, people, that's, that's one thing that, you know, when going back to sort of the beginning of, you know, why did I get involved with bees? What did I learn? What's so important to me? Why did I, why did I get so vested? I mean, you look around the room you're in and you see everything that I've gotten myself involved with with bees. And I always tell in my classes when I teach local classes, they're like, why do you like bees so much? What is so important about bees? I said, well, here's why I like bees. When I learned about bees the way I have today, I've taken you know, several classes. I'm actually in process of getting my uh, master beekeeping certification from University, University of Montana. Um, oh. But I'm in the middle of that knee deep right now, actually. Um, my point to that is, is that things that I learned, so the main thing that I think that stands out that I love telling classes, which is the day a bee is born to the day it dies, it has a job. It has a specific job, right? So whether it be, you know, being a, a nurse bee or being a building comb or being a forager for, for nectar or honey, it has a, or guard bee, for example, it has a specific job based on its age. It does its job based on its age. It doesn't ask for a different job. It doesn't ask for a day off. It doesn't say, I want that bee's job. <laughs> And you think about that concept, right? The day it's born, when we're humans, we ha, you know, we're coddled at least until we're 18 almost, right? We're taken care of. 18 years of our life. Well, the, literally the day that it emerges out of that cell, it has a specific job. It'll do that job until a few days later when it has the next job. And it'll do that job until it reaches its last job, which is the foraging job. And it basically works itself to death. That's why they have such a, lore, a short lifespan wow. because at 45 days, they're going out, they're carrying loads of pollen that's twice the size of their body weight. They have nectar that they've engorged on to bring back to the colony. And they're getting hit by birds, by rain, by storm, whatever. They're just getting tired. So they literally work themselves to death for all intents and purposes. What would happen if there were two queens in a colony? Good question. Uh, so one queen per colony. And there are points in time when there is an instance of two queens, but it's at the point in time when the colony decides that they need another queen and they're going to do two different things. One, they're going to supersede that queen. Supersede just means they are um, replacing the queen essentially uh, because she's either older or she's not laying at a capacity that they need to sustain the hive. Um, or they're going to swarm. And a swarm is a term that uh, is very common to beekeepers. Um, and it basically is the point in time when they've reached the capacity of that cavity and they need to split the hive in half. Um, so you know, they split that hive in half by creating a swarm cell or a queen cell to replace, to, to duplicate the hive. And once after that swarm or that queen emerges out, the day she's emerging out, half the colony will be taken and leave with her and swarm out in like a flurry in the sky to the location in which the scout bees have identified is their new home. Uh, and that swarming is natural for bees to do that. And it's the most amazing thing. If you've ever stood in a swarm of bees um, having a few bees fly around you is a little nerve wracking, right? But to have 50,000 bees flying around you or 20,000 bees flying around you, that are not going to sting you because they don't have a reason to sting you. They're homeless and they're looking for their new home. It is the, probably, in my opinion, one of the most amazing things that I like about beekeeping is when I get to see a swarm or experience a swarm. But it's natural. They split. They find a new home. The queen goes in. She like, starts to build combs. She starts laying. And then they just basically replicated the colony. Wow. So. All right. So I was interested in the difference or if there are differences between honey, honeycomb and wax. Like, I, I think I heard you say that they're actually eating the honey, which I never realized. Mm -hmm. Like, what are the differences in those things and how are they each created? Sure, sure. So naturally, um, as I mentioned earlier, honey is their carbohydrate. I mean, everybody need, you need carbohydrates to 
to essentially live, right? Um, and the pollen is their protein. They, um, they take and go out and harvest the nectar from plants. They consume it into their honey crop, is what they call it, um, not their stomach. It's sort of a stomach, it's like a stomach. They bring it back to the colony and they actually regurgitate that into another bee's mouth. Whoa. So the reason why they're doing that is because when it's in their honey crop, it's breaking down the chemical composition of the nectar, the sucrose, the fructose, things like that, to a more the honey-type state, essentially. That takes several bees to get it to that point. So the honey that we eat is basically the honey that's been regurgitated into other bees' mouths six, seven, eight, nine, ten times until it's at the consistency or the, the, the chemical makeup of honey. And then that honey is then deposited into a wax cell in which they fan with their wings until it gets below typically 15% moisture or 14% moisture content. Then they cap it off with wax and it's like a little jar of honey for the bees to consume at whatever point they need it um, in their life cycle. Uh, they take that honey, they mix it with pollen, and they also store that in something, an Excel, and that's called bee bread. So they actually are making a substance in which the honey and the, or the nectar and the honey are mixed with pollen and stacked up in a cell, which creates, they call it, it's called bee bread, but it's the, it's the nutrients, which the feed they give to the larva in order for those larva to grow into, to, um, to mature bees and, be, and become a bee in the colony, which, which is actually interesting because um, the bee bread itself is sort of kind of diminishing in the sense that every bee in a colony is a female bee, except for about 10% of the colony. So every bee you see flying around foraging, every bee, that, that 20 to 30,000 number that I just said in one queen are all female bees. There are very little male bees within a colony. There's drone bees, which are about 10% of the colony typically, and they're, the, they're the, the male bees. And those male bees really just propagate the genetics of the colony. And in the fall, they get kicked out and they're basically killed because they're kicked out of the colony because they don't, they're a drain on resources as you go into winter. So the main core of a colony that does all the jobs, that does everything, are female. Um, and ironic enough, the colony feeds that larva at day four uh, and determines whether that's going to become a worker bee or a queen bee. So if they want a queen bee, they don't feed it bee bread. They will not feed it bee bread because bee bread, essentially the, the composition of uh, pollen and nectar bee bread will reduce the ovaries in the female bee so she can't reproduce. So they become essentially a worker bee. But the absence of bee bread allows the queen to mature, allows a worker bee to mature with the developing, developing ovaries and they build a bigger cell for her abdomen to be much larger and things like that. And they, that's essentially how the colony, not the queen, it's not a monarchy, it's a democracy, which is crazy, right? The colony decides at that point in time they want a new queen and they just make that on day four. They make that decision to do that. If you took, your mind's probably like, what the heck? Well, if you took this concept and you made bees the size of people, this would be a sci-fi movie. Like, it would, right? yeah, it sounds like aliens. Yep. Um, so, is is honeycomb then like the vessel for storing the honey? Yeah, yeah. So back to that other part of that question, which would be the honey. I kind of described the honey and the importance and how it plays. The honeycomb is actually interesting because it's wax. It's one hundred percent wax. And it's created out of their abdomen. It's extruded out of their abdomen when they're 12 days old. So up until 12 days old, they can't create wax. Wax they, being like fat, right? Like, well, sort of, yeah. It's like a fax, a fat type of a compound. Um, but it, it's actually physical wax um, that they extrude out of their abdomen. So I, I, again, I probably something in my further reading and research that can get the explanation of what the composition of wax is out of their abdomen. Probably a, a person of, of fat, I guess, in that. Um, but they need a lot of honey. They consume a lot of honey to extrude these wax flakes out of their abdomen. They chew those wax flakes off, almost like it's like a, a building material. And then they construct the honeycomb shape. Because in nature, honeycomb it takes the least amount of space and have the least amount of wasted space. The actual hexagon, when nested next to each other, if you nested a circle or you nested something else, it has the most amount of volume space that it can hold, as well as the least amount of wasted space between the actual shape. Whoa. So that's why they create honeycomb, and you see it in nature. Um, and they, to your point, yes, they store in that honeycomb or honey and pollen and various other things. And they're brood. They lay their brood in that honeycomb as well. Um, and then eventually... Uh, the brood will go to a, from a larva to a pupa, have a little kind of mini cocoon inside that, that wax cell capped off, and then they emerge out as well. 
uh, in the future when their brood is being. You can eat the honeycomb itself, right? Correct, yeah. So brood comb, you don't really want to because it does have that fine, a very fine uh, kind of cocoon inside the, the wax. There's still wax. It's still a structure made of wax, but the inside of it is kind of a cocoon where the brood has been laid. But traditional honeycomb that you would have that's harvested and or just storing honey where there's never been brood in it is 100% wax and it's all natural. You can eat it. Um, and that wax is critical for a beehive to be sustained, right? For them, they, they actually uh, communicate via the wax, you know, to each, to the other side, you know, from the various combs being touched to each other and being a diff- certain distance apart and various things like that. And um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why um, the traditional beehive, we call it the Western honeybee or, you know, the traditional beehive that we, that I keep today um, really wasn't here in the U.S. in its mass scale like it is that now. Uh, it was brought here in the 1620s. So the, the, the act of beekeeping and keeping in skeps, bee skeps, that was that thing I mentioned earlier, was brought to the U.S. by the colonists in the 1620s. Whoa. They were feral hives and trees and there were small amounts and they, they probably were the same amount of volume of pollinators that you would see today with butterflies and bumblebees and everything else. But on mass scale beekeeping and honeybees kept in bee skeps for the purposes of the sweetener, right, the honey, and the wax for burning candles. I mean, the colonists needed candles to build, you know, have candles to see. So they, they needed that wax and that that sugar sweetener for their survival. So they brought them over here. And that's really what kind of started the concept of, you know, we'll call it beekeeping of sorts. And beekeeping has been around, though, for since the Egyptians. I mean, they were keeping bees and there's, they found uh, in tombs uh, bees that are uh, encased in like, um, like, uh, kind of a rock or whatever that uh, is called. Uh, I can't think of the name at this, this point, but uh, yeah, they, they found the and, and ways they kept wow. bees. It's fascinating. So beekeeping has been around for a very, very long time and various forms or, or states. And even sort of like the wild consumption, um, the, the name escapes me, but there's an indigenous group in Tanzania mm-hmm. and they go out and they actually like they hunt baboons with dogs, mm-hmm. but they will break off honeycomb and eat it. And you'll, mm-hmm. you'll see this. There's some videos like of the bees just like stinging them as they're grabbing it and stuff and they're completely like unaffected by it. Yeah, yeah. Well, so be, being stung and working with bees, uh, there are, yeah, you're right. There are guys that um, there's certain types of honey that can be harvested off the cliffs. I don't know exactly where I've seen some videos. These massive open air beehives, so they're not really in like a cavity. They're kind of hanging off of a cliff. And these guys will climb these ropes all the way to the top and Nepal. bring down. Nepal, yeah. There is, so the beauty of that is, is there's certain, uh, and this is something that's not well known by many people is I get the comment a lot, wow, your, your honey's amazing. And I said, well, my honey's not amazing. It's the fact that you're just now really tasting raw honey, right? If you've never really had raw honey growing up, you don't really can, you can't appreciate it. Um, those that drink wine and those that drink like cheap wine understand the difference between a good wine and a mass produced cheap wine. Honey is the exact same thing. Uh, it's underappreciated. It's not appreciated like wine, which we I wish it would because then the cost of it would go up and I would you know be better off. But um, I would say that um, it's nectar source, it's region, the moisture in that time of year, where it came from, the blend of all the nectars, everything play a role in that one bottle of honey. So that bottle of honey that's harvested, that's raw honey, when you taste it, you're like, wow, this is the best thing ever. Why is it? Because most honeys that you eat are either imported or they're made based not of nectar, but of sugar water or fructose. So in large scale in other countries, in order to kind of get the, the sale of honey, they will feed bees fructose, essentially sugar, sugar and sugar water. They will then harvest it as honey because the bees will still make honey out of it, but it's not a nectar-based honey. It's a sugar, sucrose, uh, more of a, a fructose-based honey. And that honey is what we typically see in mass scale when you go to like you know, I'm not going to name any names necessarily, but they're, when you go to the supermarket. It's often in the teddy bear. It's often in the teddy bear <laughs> in the supermarket, right? And it just says, you know, sweet honey, whatever it may be. If you don't see the words local or raw, or if you don't know the beekeeper where you bought that honey from, to me, in my opinion, it's probably junk. It's probably syrup. It just tastes like honey. And that's the difference between when you taste real honey and when you taste uh, just store-bought honey. And it's amazing because the store-bought honey, when you taste it, Tastes exactly the same. You could get five bottles of store-bought honey from 10, right. 10 different places. It's like syrup. And tastes just the same. Whereas if you taste 
the bottle honeys that I have in here that are all my honey from my apiary, every single bottle, unless it's from the same batch, will taste different. My neighbor's honey will taste different, even though they're five, 10 miles away. The, you know, anybody else that harvests honey will taste different because of that reason. Is there, I mean, just generally understanding mass production, is there strategy for that, that it's like cheaper and easier to make more honey that way? Um, yes. So that's the reason why they do it. They can produce it. I mean, there's, you need to make honey, you need a nectar source. So what the one thing that as a beekeeper, we battle with something called the flow or the dearth. The nectar flow is when there's flora and there's being nectar being produced. So just because there's flowers doesn't mean there's nectar. Flowers produce, this is actually fascinating when I did some research reading, um, everybody understands the concept of pollination. You know, a flower's here, a flower's there, and they need to pollinate in order to, re- to reproduce, essentially. Well, interestingly enough, they can't get up out of the ground and walk over and touch the other flower. They right. need help. So they need pollinators, butterflies, bees, so on and so forth. Well, these flowers over the generations, since the dinosaurs, have changed dramatically from what the flora looked like back in that age versus now. Why is that? Well, they're competing for pollinators. They're competing for the pollinators to come to them, not to go to the next flower, this, this over here. It's bizarre because you're thinking, how is a flower smart enough to know that, right? Well, maybe there's a subconscious within that flower world. I won't get into that whole philosophical debate. But if you think about it, that concept um, of them pollinating and having to attract a bee to them or a pollinator, I should say, is, is amazing that when that pollinator lands and basically brushes the pollen off of that flower onto its hairs on its body, it's tempted by the nectar that's produced by the flower. The nectar has no business for the flower. The flower doesn't need the nectar, has no reason to create other than to give something as a sweet treat to the pollinator that lands as it's collecting up the pollen on its body. It drinks the nectar up and it goes to the next flower. And when it goes to the next flower, it's dropping off pollen at that next flower. Essentially, pollination occurs. That's the concept of pollination. But in the process, the bee's collecting up its own pollen to bring back for its own protein, and it's drinking up all the nectar to bring back for its carbohydrate as it relates to you know making honey. And so that whole concept is, is just amazing to think about um, how that, you know, the, the, that whole ecosystem just survives and, and, and you know, thrives in, that, in that, wire, that kind of way. So it's fascinating. I, I'm I'm not quite religious, uh, but that that almost sounds like design. That that it's incredible yeah. that that system works like that. Yeah, and 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 I am you know I am religious in, in nature, and I do believe in God, and I do believe in, in in spirituality, and I believe that everything has a reason, everything has a purpose, regardless of what your belief system is. When you look at a beehive, and you look at pollination, you just look at nature around you, and you observe a beehive. Um, I'll show you after we, we talk today. I have an observation hive in here I can open up and you can look at the bees work around. Um, and I use that for teaching purposes. But watching that colony work as a super organism, watching them do what they do, how they communicate, how they interact in their own little world, right, is so amazing. And then to think about how critical they are for all of us to even just continue to keep thriving and living. I mean, like I said, you know, Einstein, I think, maybe even quoted it. I don't know if it's true or not, but someone had said, if the bees died tomorrow, we would have X number of time to live. And it's true because the way we depend upon them for our own food sources, for pollination, for things like that. So there's a balance. I mean, there's a balance. I get into debates with farmers, not with farmers, but with people all the time. They're like, the farmers need to spray because they need that, you know, yield because they're, they're, they're just trying to make ends meet as well. Right. And there's a balance. Spray right? to kill. Spray to peel pests and weeds yeah. and things like that. Um, because that's the balance that they need to create a crop in order to feed their family as well. Right. But we need. But the problem is, is that not done in that in sort of a balance could create an issue because you're, you know, you're not going to be able to have those pollinators. Um, I'm actually working locally here in Cecil County with um, a representative and uh, the Department of Agricultural Commerce to come up with a modification to the cover crop. Uh, that's that currently out there. So it's something that's kind of important to me because I see every year the farms around me who take advantage of the cover crop. In Maryland, they have something where during the time when you're not crop, when you're not planting a crop, they have something called cover crop. Typically during the winter, they plant this so that there's not a lot of erosion. Um, and, and there's also a benefit, I think, long-term for, you know, if it does bloom, allowing that cover crop to go to bloom, allowing the pollinators to have something to eat early in the spring when there's not a lot of things for them to do. Uh, the problem with that program is that it's still very much focused on the timing of when a farmer needs to harvest, when a harvester needs to spray, when a, things need to happen, instead of recognizing that buffering that a week or two differently 
or incentivizing that farmer to do something as simple as cut the bloom before they spray would be tremendous change to how we handle our pollinators and our natural pollinators in the area. If a farmer could cut the bloom off, there's no pollinators to work that bloom. Mm. Therefore, when they spray a few days later or a day later, they won't kill thousands and thousands of pollinators that are over there on their flowers of their cover crop right before they're getting ready to plant soy or plant corn or what have you. So it's uh, one little change and one little incentive that if the state or and or the governments would get behind to say, we need a balance here. We need more pollinators for lots of reasons, natural pollinators as well as, you know, beekeeping pollinating, right? But that, the flip side of that is if the farmer could do that little step, they could still do the process that they normally do. It's just a little bit more of a burden because it takes fuel to run the tractor. They have to do a second run when they cut. So I get it. But see, my point is that we all have a, a duty to sum that concept up. Not just, it's not just about that change to the crop program, I think. To me, we all have a duty that I've learned over my last six years doing this to do our part as a balance. It's not sacrificing you know, things that we love and cherish, right? It's just that we have to all work a little harder if we're going to expect a lot out of our of Mother Nature and things around us. We just have to work a little harder to make sure that it's going to be sustainable. So that's where sustainable beekeeping yeah. concept comes in. I guess I never thought that or never even thought about the concept that spraying wouldn't discriminate between an insect that's a pest and an insect that's there to pollinate. It's going to kill everything. Yeah. Wow. Uh, will your bees produce in all seasons because you're kind of controlling for climate and all that? Uh, yes and no. So there's no, if there's, so when I mentioned earlier a flow, the opposite of that is a dearth. Right, so dearth is where there is not a lot of rainfall in a period of seven to ten or fourteen days, mm. and there's not much flowers because they're not blooming at that point. So late summer, mid to late summer, if it gets really hot and warm, we could go into a dearth, and that means there's no nectar anywhere, very little pollen. And if they need that in a booming hive of sixty to seventy thousand bees in that hive, what are they going to do? Right, so they have to then start to eat their reserves. So they eat into the honey reserves that they've stored, which is why they keep so much honey. Um, it's fascinating because I tell people that as long as there's a flow and you put a box on your beehive, they'll make honey. As long as there's a flow. You can put box on box on box on box, 15 boxes high, they'll fill them with honey. They're not going to stop. They're not going to go, we have enough honey, we're good. They're not going to do that. They're going to keep making honey for that point in time when that nectar flow stops and they don't have it. And they have all those reserves for that, that colony to become strong and continue on through the either the winter, the fall, the winter, the time frame when there is no nectar flow or no flora. So come fall, we do have a small fall flow around here on the eastern shore of Maryland. It's the goldenrod and we call it ragweeds, the yellow flowers on the side of the road. Um, there's other, the daisies and a few other flowers that will bloom. They'll get, get pollen from and some nectar. But primarily the flow for us is typically starting in, you know, the end of March, you know, into really June into July. So around this weekend, end of June going into July is when we switch gears on what I call the native flow. If you pulled in, you saw tons of flowers everywhere. That's me planting to extend that flow to give them something to eat because they have to build themselves up to have enough stores if I'm going to harvest honey to survive a winter. So that's the point of um, why I continue to keep feeding, extending that flow season. Um, once I've harvested my honey, I'm going to go back and, and I will feed. You know, people are like, oh, well, isn't feeding, isn't that what, you, what they do to, you know, they, to over a season to make honey? Well, that's their honey. That's not my honey. I'm not going to harvest that. That's one thing I'm very um, staunch on, and, and some are not, uh, which is feeding during a flow. Right or feeding and having honey supers on. Honey supers are basically the box at the top that's my honey. Everything in the bottom boxes are their honey, um, whether you use a queen excluder or not. But my point to that is, is that when I have honey supers on where I'm collecting honey for my customers, you won't see a drop of feed in my apiary. Yeah. There's, I, it, I, 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 I don't want to participate in the adulteration of honey like the mask scale commercial you know, honey, honey producers or importers do. So my raw honey is pure raw honey, now, whether they fly over and start drinking from a soda can on the deck, I can't stop that. But 99.99% of the time, they're going to eat the nectar sources that are available to them. And even interesting enough, during a flow, you could take an open plate of honey and put it out. Regular processed honey, honey that's been actually in the hive and such. And bees may come to it. They may not. They're primarily focused on getting that nectar source and making it honey. It's bizarre. Whereas in a dearth, if I walked out there right now and took a small tray of honey and set it out there, you'd see thousands of bees on that honey within 15 minutes. 
consuming every single drop of that honey. There won't be a single drop of honey on that plate within like an hour. Whoa. That's just because that's what they need. They need that to eat, and there's no nectar sources. Will they always come back to the colony, or do they ever fly off or like get lost or something? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good one, too. So that's the communication part of bees, and which are also so fascinating to me. So bees actually orient using geolocation, geolocation and the sun. Uh, how they do that is they come out, and they, they've located the degree in which the sun is at a point in time in their, at their hive, and their, their internal geolocation helps them understand that when they fly out, they're going to go to a specific location that's been already indicated to them by the scout bees. So a scout bee is the first type of bees that will come out of a hive. They'll orient against the sun in the hive. They fly to wherever they find, you know, honey or nectar, where, not honey, but nectar and or pollen, the, the resources they're looking for. They fly back to the hive and they go into the hive on the combs and they do something called a waggle dance. And that waggle dance is almost like a figure eight. So they'll do kind of like a figure eight and then they wiggle their body. The, this, the length of the degrees, they wiggle their body and the angle in which they do that, the other bees are observing that and, and getting that sense of that, that behavior. And they know that that length of that waggle and the distance and, and the angle in which they did it is the degree they need to leave the hive, go the angle to the sun, that direction, and they'll find the forage that they're looking for. So oh they're communicating in that way as well. Uh, and they call it the waggle dance. It's just how they communicate and tell each other where the forage is, essentially. It's fascinating. Yeah. Seeing it happen is even more fascinating. When I pulled my first frame out, you know, a year into beekeeping, and I had established colleagues, a few established colleagues at that time, and I pulled it up and I read about this waggle dance, right? And I looked at the frame and I watched out in the corner of this bee do this little dance in this little circle. I'm like, there it is. There's the waggle <laughs> dance. That's the most amazing thing. I've never seen that. That was, And it's it's so fascinating to think this whole world's going on within their little colony and their, you know, and you're holding a frame of bees of thousands. You hold a frame of bees, that's thousands of bees. Most people are afraid of a single bee around their head that's going to sting them in their ear or whatever, or, and they swat at them, right? Or they see it on the ground and they're like, oh, there's a bee, there's a bee, right? And I'm holding a, a frame with thousands of bees on it and they're not, they're not coming at me. They're just there because they're doing their job. They're, they've got a job to do and they're not worried about me. Yeah, I was wondering... It sounds like maybe not because they have their own food source, but are they like defensive and irritated when you're harvesting? Uh, when you're harvesting, yeah. So oh. you know, naturally, uh, so beekeepers wear protective gear for a reason. They're not going to not wear protective gear. No one wants to get stung. And it's amazing because bees actually have uh, things that indicators to us as to what they are going to be doing, whether they're going to be aggressive or not. Really? Uh, they express pheromones to communicate as well, pheromones to help attract the, the bees back to the colony, various other things. They have a pheromone that's a fight defense pheromone that the guard bees will essentially put off. And to, to them, it doesn't smell like anything. There's no scent like with a nose scent, like weak smell. They don't smell the same way. They communicate via their antennae and, and, and various other uh, body parts on their, on their body. Um, but that pheromone that they express to us actually smells like bananas. No. Yeah, yeah, it smells like bananas. And I have a, uh, a practice that when I'm inspecting a colony and I open up the lid and I see inside the colony or the colony has that smell of sort of bananas, I'll close the colony up and move to another colony or I'll use smoke in a smoker to kind of mask that, that pheromone from spreading because I don't want to communicate that aggressive defensive nature. And it really depends on the colony. Sometimes the colony, uh, depending on the weather, depending on if it's cloudy, if there's no sun for them to orient, if it's, you know, if it's really windy out or if the barometric pressure is high, all different factors come into play of why a hive would be aggressive. Um, most hives are not, though. Most if they're doing their job and it's ideal conditions, they're not going to be aggressive. But we do put on gear to protect ourselves when we're doing things like pulling frames of honey and stealing their honey, essentially, right? Um, and doing things like that. Um, we do put beekeeping gear on to ensure, like you see hanging behind me on the wall, to protect ourselves from getting stung because you still don't want to get stung. Right. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. it hurts. Um, <laughs> bee venom is just as potent as cobra venom, where I've read. It's just in a smaller amount that's so you can't get you can't impact you like like getting you know bit by a cobra for example and cobra snake there's so. a maybe this is strange i don't know but i had seen this at the start of pandemic like a lot of people we were just like watching netflix and mm -hmm. it's kind of shameful that i wasted so much time but um <laughs> we had seen some program on netflix that was like a mini docu series and there were people who were using bee venom and being stung as like some sort of therapeutic mm -hmm. quality 
Is there legitimacy to that? Yeah, yeah. So leg- legitimacy, I don't know. I mean, I've not done the research to yeah. understand if it's truly legitimate. But I will tell you, there is something called BVT, which is bee venom treatment. And there is a lot of people across the country and across the world that believe that the venom that's extruded from a bee um, has medicinal properties to it. Right, much like they believe that honey has medicinal properties and, right. and the wax and something I haven't mentioned yet, which is something called propolis, uh, which is essentially the glue that the bees glue their hive together with. It's almost like spackle on a house. All of those things um, have perceived medicinal benefits. It really depends on the person who's receiving that, that how it will impact them, either on a small scale or grand scale. But I will say... I did have someone, I've, and you know, a couple years ago, stop by the apiary and say, "Hey, do you sell bees for BVT?" I said, "Excuse me for what?" And uh, BVT, bee venom treatment. I was like, "What is that?" And they explained it to me. And they literally have they had Lyme's disease, and they oh. believed that through research that being purposely stung several times within down the back their back, which is the, around the spinal area, because I guess that's the quickest way for the venom to get to the bloodstream or what have you, that it helps mitigate the symptoms and or th- the chronic things that you deal with when it comes from Lyme's disease. Because many people know that Lyme's disease is really hardly curable. I don't know if it's yeah. curable. It has a lot of uh, debilitating things that that hurt people, you know, major, major arthritis and other types of things. So um, that bee venom, I guess, going in is helps to mitigate some of that. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's, you know, science is amazing, right? So it's the things you can get from the products of a hive, from the honey to the wax to the propolis to the bee venom, people are using it all around, and it, it just fascinates me. I mean, I've never sold bees. For, oh, that was the other funny thing is that I said, "Well, how much do people pay for these boxes of bees? That how much do you want?" I'm looking over at my colonies that have thousands and thousands of bees. He's like, "Well, it's just a little cupful." <laughs> I said, "A cup of bees." I said, "How much do you pay for a cup of bees?" And I'm like, oh, "We usually typically pay twenty to twenty-five dollars." Scoop, scoop, scoop. Here you go. Come back tomorrow. I was, I, it was great. I mean, wow. I, I don't have any problem because those bees. The ones that are you seeing on the outside of the hive, typically are the foragers. They're they're going to die in like five days, ten days right. anyway. Why not allow them to, to benefit someone else? And they do die when they sting. They do die yeah. when they sting. Yeah, and, for, and then, well, the reason why honeybees die when they sting is because their stingers are barbed. Um, they have a barbed stinger, and it actually when they sting other bees or other exoskeleton insects, they don't die. Whoa. When they sting mammals and or humans, their skin our skin is elastic, so the barb stays in our skin, and they can't pull back the barb like a hornet or a wasp because they're straight barb. They're, they're, they don't have a barb stinger, which is why a wasp or a hornet can sting you multiple times. A bee stings you once and it goes to pull away. It panics because it realizes its body is stuck to your skin and it pulls away fast and it rips its innards out with the venom sac still pumping. Whoa. So the best thing you can do, if I could give anybody a tip on what to do when you get stung by a bee, is take your fingernail and scrape away the stinger. Don't pinch the stinger because when you pinch it, likely that venom sac is still attached to it and you just squeeze venom into your sting. So it just makes it worse. So take your fingernail and scrape it away or credit card or something like that. Yeah. I usually have a hive tool and I mean, if I get stung, I'll just scrape it away really fast. And Do you get stung often? I would say, I mean, when you define often, I mean, if you're saying <laughs> someone who gets stung more than, you know, a couple times a year, then yeah. Um, I would say you know, pretty healthy amount of times. It, but it's, it's, you know, a lot of times when I get stung, I've been stung so much now at, um, it doesn't it doesn't really bother me. It almost is kind of more of a nuisance than it is mm. a pain. Now, depending on where you get stung, I mean, you get stung in the tip of your finger or on your face somewhere, it's going to hurt a lot more. Just yeah. the, those nerve endings are a lot more sensitive. So, um, I you know I I definitely put wear a veil. And if you see me working bees on any given normal day when I'm not harvesting honey or ripping apart hives to do whatever, or moving hives, I'll probably wear in flip flops, shorts, and a veil. And people are like, you're crazy. Like, no. <laughs> it's because I can't see through all that gear and I tend to sweat a lot and I tend to be more you know, uncomfortable to, to manage the bees yeah. and the full gear, especially as you get into the heat of summer, um, than it would be just to be patient. And that and that's the main thing that when working bees, I learned, if I could say what I've gotten out of beekeeping in addition to all the benefits of the honey and the small business and various other things, is, and that other stuff that I talked about, you know, learning the little intricacies of the nature of bee jobs and why it's important and bees are important to us for pollination. But patience, hmm. um, you know, patience is important. So uh, maybe a personal story to share with you, if um, if I can. Yeah, of course. Um, when I was starting to go out to do beekeeping, I found this Kickstarter campaign and bought a beehive. And then I, you know, figured out where I got bees and I started to keep bees. That was the 
really by that point in time, I had been keeping bees for about a year. And then the beginning of 2017, um, I started to grow my apiary where I had, you know, eight or 10 hives. And those hives were, you know, I was starting to learn more about bees and trying to figure out how to grow my apiary more and how I could get, you know, expanded into maybe a business, a side business. And then in July of 2017, I was actually shifting my full-time career. I was actually doing a lot of traveling and things like that. And I had got a new job working for um, someone in the financial services side of the business. That's what else I do. And um, I was starting my new job the week of mid, mid-July timeframe. Again, I had about 10 or so hives at that point. My wife of several years, we were married for several years at that point, in 2017, uh, suffered a spinal stroke. We were out shopping. Whoa. We were in our early 40s. She suffered a spinal stroke that was very debilitating. She was paralyzed from the waist down. Oh, my gosh. Suddenly, completely snap of a finger, out shopping, thinking everything's great. I'm getting ready to leave for my new job on Monday. We're out having dinner, shopping, things like that. She started to get pains in her back and legs and things like that, lost all feeling, ended up being paralyzed from her waist down. And for me, um, I'm, I've always grown up to be, from my dad and my family, I've always been a fixer. I mean, I'm always a tinker, you know, I'm out in the garage, I'm building this, and fixing that. When my wife had that spinal stroke, I couldn't fix her. It was something that was something that was foreign to me. You know, there's nothing that I could do, absolutely zero that I could do, except just be there, right? Yeah. So what I ended up doing is saying, you know, the hobby that I had at the time, the hobby, right, ended up becoming my outlet while she was going through rehab and helping me to cope with things that I could work on, that I could fix, that I could help, that I could do, right? It was my outlet. And so what really became something that was bad at the time became a lifesaver for me. So there's a term, save the bees. I think the bees saved me, honestly, to be bluntly honest. Um, And to this day, she's now walking again. She's on your face. You're like, oh God, is he what? Yeah, so she's, I mean, she's not walking. She's not at 100%, but she does. She's going through several surgeries, several things to help get her back to where she is. But she's 100% normal from the waist up. You know, fun-loving wife that laughs and jokes like nothing's wrong, waist down, completely different um, until up till now. Now she's been, you know, recovered back to the point. She's probably about 80. She would say she's probably 80%. I think she's more than that. But because I've seen her progression. Right. So she's she can walk. She walks with crutches. She uses a wheelchair when she needs it. She has a brace that she has on one of her foot. But, you know, not to get into the whole details of that. But that's really, honestly, it's amazing how things in your life that you don't expect come along and other things kind of help nurture you through that point mm. in time and get you to where you're at. So now something that was a hobby is now become an obsession, as you can see when you look around my shop here. Um, also, like I said, it probably saved me more than I saved the bees at the end of the day. So that's wow. kind of... Well, you can tell you're incredibly passionate about it. I mean, your setup here is amazing. You have a really awesome leg sleeve there too, which looks like it's oh. it's got honeycomb on it. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's, yeah, that's an incredible story. Um, I, I'm sitting here looking at equipment. I know people can't see that, but I am wondering, like, what happens between harvesting and bottling to make it, like, mm-hmm. I guess, okay for consumption, or do you have to do anything? Yeah, no, it's a good question because, you know, honey is naturally, by its default, antimicrobial, antibacterial, antifungal. Oh. Um, so it's already sanitary in its own sense, coming right out of the hive. But with any operation that you're going to be selling something, you have to put the effort and the time in to make sure you do it in a sanitary manner, not that you're going to you know, pass any type of things mm. along that potentially. And, and, and watching that honey, because one entire batch of honey can be ruined by one frame that's not completely cured. So bees have to make sure that that honey is at less than 14% moisture in order to ensure that it doesn't go stale, essentially ferment, right? So one frame that I choose to get a little greedy on that isn't properly capped to be harvested, and I say, oh, I, I, want, I want more honey, so oh, that frame looks good. And I harvest it, and I mix that honey with all the rest of the honey, could ferment the entire batch and lose thousands and thousands and thousands of honey, gallons of honey, not thousands, but thousands of pounds of honey, but hundreds of gallons of honey, based on the fact that I was greedy and I decided that that, that frame is just going to be okay. Right Now, some people have techniques to dry their honey to get the moisture out of it. I don't necessarily do that. I'm on a small-scale operation, more sideline. And even hobbyists, don't need all the stuff you see here. All this equipment is is so I can continue to progress into larger. I run 70 plus colonies here. Oh. So it's not your backyard beekeeper anymore, right? It's more of a sideline, right? So in order to process that much honey, 
Um, you know, some beekeepers have 500,000, 2,000, 3,000 plus 10,000 hives. When you get to that scale, you're a commercial beekeeper and you typically are moving your hives around the country and you have a lot bigger lot assembly line like than I have here um, to harvest honey. Um, I use, you know, the equipment now because this is kind of that intermediary between being a hobbyist and a sideliner. And in order to grow that, um, I use this. And, and really the process of honey is pretty straightforward. I mean, I'm pulling frames out of a colony, uncapping them off, cutting the wax capping that they've closed off that cell with. And then I take that frame and I stick into an extractor. It spins, shoots all the honey out on the walls. It drains down through a strainer. I filter it once to get any of the particulates that are big or anything out of it and literally put it in a bottle, put it in a bottling tank and bottle it. And the reason why I do that is because I want the rawest honey that you can go from comb, you know, from bee to comb to bottle because that's where honey is its best. And that's when people say, you have the best honey around. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> it's not my honey. I didn't do all, I did a lot of the work to get it there, to bottle it. But a bee is what really did all the work. I mean, one bee, its entire life will make one twelfth a teaspoon of honey. Its entire what? life. That's the tip of your pinky. The tip of your pinky, one bee, will make that much honey. It's an entire life. So you think about that. One twelfth a teaspoon. Yeah, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. <laughs> and I look over and you look at a jar of honey that's sitting over on the chauffeur there that has how many bees it took to make one jar of honey, right? And yet that bottle sells for... 10 to $12, sometimes $15, depending on where you're buying it from, a pound. That's a pound of honey. That's crazy to think about the amount of bees, the amount of effort, the amount of time, the amount of purity and what comes, where it comes from, from just nature's bounty of nectar into a bottle of honey that you and I enjoy for in your tea or on your toast or whatever you put it on. Some people, you'll draw it on the, right on the spoon, right? Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. You have a really informative YouTube channel you've mm -hmm. mentioned running classes here how can people find out more follow sure. you and even you know purchase honey if they wanted to yeah so good question uh i have a youtube channel i have all, a lot of social media platforms i believe that one of the things that lack with beekeeping traditional beekeeping when i got into it one is the information um, and sometimes there is an information overload on some topics, and I think it still happens in beekeeping. Uh, there's always a joke that you ask a bee, 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 one beekeeper a question, you'll get two, answers, two or three answers, right? Uh, because they're very opinionated about what they do. I tend to take a different approach to beekeeping, and I love to share information. I, I, I look at a lot of the older generation of beekeepers keep it very close to the vest. They do share in some cases, um, but I think they need to do more to educate all generations about the importance of bees, how to keep bees, what to do. So I do, I do have classes that I run. I actually run a program in addition to the classes that I teach for local community schools um, and for just people who sign up for classes um, that come to my apiary or I go wherever to, to teach. Um, I have something called a Rent-A-Hive program. And the Rent-A-Hive program kind of bridges the gap between people that are in need for a mentor and want to start working bees but have no clue how to start. It's where I was mm -hmm. six years ago. I had no idea how to start. And I had a pretty good mentor. Um, and he helped, and he helped where he could. Uh, he taught me a lot. And I will say that um, having someone, though, kind of get you exposed to bees in a program where you don't feel like you're all in but you're in – and that's what the Rent-A-Hive program does. And I think that fills the gap. And so what I do is I typically take, um, you know, anywhere from eight to 10 people a year. And I set up a program where they essentially buy the bees. They have what we call the brew box. They get the box and the bees. They don't have to worry about any other equipment at all. I have the jackets. I have the tools. I have every other piece that they need here. And their hive is here. So they set up a hive. I sell them a, a nucleus colony of bees. We install it in their colony. We go through six sessions, which are the first one's two hours, which is a class that we talk through like I'm doing with you now and teach them everything I know about the basics of bees of what, when a bee is born, what does it do and how do you, you know, what do you need to feed it? What is this piece of equipment in and what are the pests you have to worry about? All that stuff, the, the classroom stuff. And then the remaining five sessions are you doing inspections on your hive and in my apiary. The beauty of it is when they're not here to do those sessions, I take care of their bees. So uh -huh. they don't have to worry about it. They don't have to worry about where am I going to put bees? How are bees? What is it going to be like to have bees? What is it going to like to be stung? What equipment do I need? That takes completely off their plate, off their mind. They can focus on determining if this is really for them. Because there's a lot of people that get involved in beekeeping and then they get in beekeeping and they realize either they lose their hives and then they're done, right? Or they get so overwhelmed by the process, they're like, 
panicking, being two years in, they've got all these bees, they don't know what they're doing, why are they doing that? It's helpful. It's helpful to have that in the community, to be able to share my knowledge of what I experienced. It's me giving back is all it is. It's me giving back to, um, you know, and then there's, you know, there's a cost for the program, but for me, it's rewarding to know that I have local beekeepers around me. I can tell you that in this area that you drove through when you came in, there's about 10 or so homes on, we'll call it farmette type settings, right? Six, five, six, seven, eight, 10 acre little house, lots with houses on them. Of this little 10 or so people, there are three beekeepers in this area that are my, that are, I'm mentoring. Oh, cool. So that's, it's cool to know that I've got, you know, someone down the street that's got three or four of my hives. I got another person over here around the corner that's got three or four of my hives. They're not my hives anymore. They're their hives. Right. But they've progressed to the point to where they're managing their own little mini apiary. And it's helping the community around us because the bees are pollinating the fruits, you know, around the area, the, nat- the natural vegetation, the gardens and things like that. And they're getting their own little honey. And, and people are like, well, aren't you creating competitors to yourself for your honey? I was like, no, not really, because every bottle of wine is different, right? Yeah. Every bottle of honey is different. So I'd, I'll get honey from them because I want to taste what their honey tastes like. And I want, my, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's all us supporting each other. It's kind of like, if you think about it, an analogy to the community around me is my beehive, right? I have I like to, that, that's yeah. my job, right? I mean, my job is to make sure that the other bees are going to sustain the beekeeping. There's some day that I'm not going to be here, right? And whether my kids take over what I do and who knows, right? I'm not, you know, saying that they need to, but um, I, I know that that tradition of beekeeping and what's important to me and what I learned from it from both a personal growth perspective as well as just a sustainable operational growth, to me, that's, that's what I need to do. You know, that's what I need to make sure that people can continue on that process. I will link to your social media, uh, the website, so people listening know that in whatever player they're listening, just go to the description and there will be some hyperlinks. Before I close out, though, it, that triggered something. I had seen a video that you had done of you, I guess, if somebody has a natural hive at their home that they think is a nuisance, Mm-hmm. you will help them like safely remove it without damaging the bees yeah, yeah. in the colony? Yeah, so that's called, you probably saw a video of a recent cutout I did. So yeah, so the one thing about bees, the fortunate or unfortunate, it really depends on you know how your perspective on it because we need them in whatever capacity we can have them. But the unfortunate part is like with any animal, they're going to find home up wherever they want to find home. Mm. And naturally, as we increase the pollinators or we increase uh, where we have, um, what we have in the area, even feral hives, when they're in a cavity of a tree and they get too big for that cavity of that tree and they need to split, they're going to look for a new home in a cavity. Well, if you've got a lot of homes nearby, they're going to find a cavity in the side of a wall or in an eave of a house. Um, or they're going to swarm in that interim period, a cluster on a, as a ball on a branch or a tree. So what I always tell people is, you're right, if you see bees in a flurry clustering on a ball or tree or branch or something like that, a fence post, Call a local beekeeper, call me, call someone to come get those bees. Why? Because we can safely rescue them, put them in a beehive, traditional beehive, and manage them appropriately so that they don't find home up in your house. Mm. Because if they do find that that's where their end place is going to be and they get inside the wall or the eve of a house, it gets expensive, it's messy, and you still want to save the bees because people don't realize that when they make that home inside that cavity, um, you, the first reaction for people is, oh my gosh, they're invading my house. I got honeybees that sting and this, that, and I can't have them. I'm allergic, whatever it may be. And they spray or they call it, now they call a local pest uh, person that comes out and realizes they're honeybees. If they're a good pest person, they won't do anything with them. They'll say, I'm sorry, you got to call a beekeeper. They're honeybees. I'm not, I can't spray them. He, they won't if they're good. Um, if, if they, um, if they do take resident up in your home or your structure, then you can contact a local beekeeper like myself and others. You can um, find them either on like the Maryland Beekeepers website, Delaware Beekeepers, wherever you're locally based to uh, search for beekeepers that would be willing to do a cutout. Now, there's a cost for it and it's a, it's a lengthy, messy process, but we've got to get that comb out of those walls because that comb is full of honey and pollen and everything else. If you kill the bees by spraying them, the comb's still there. The honey's still there. So what do you do at that point? Now you have rats. Now you have cockroaches. Now you have other bugs that are going to eat on the comb in your walls or in your ceiling. You don't want those versus you want, you know, you'd rather have a honeybee colony get removed than ha- and have to pay a little bit of money for it than have to have come, someone come back and spray because the other pests that are now attracted to your house when you have dripping honey coming down inside your walls. That's the reason why we do that service. We help that um, mitigate that problem that people 
have. Um, and it's not easy. It's believe me, that's not my fun. That's not my favorite part of beekeeping. I do like trying to rescue hives out of buildings. Catching swarms are always fun. I love doing that. Every beekeeper tells you that because they're free bees, right? A free colony of bees. For me, beekeeping um, is about doing all those things. Every little piece of that equally and enjoying the, the craft of beekeeping that's been done for years. That's so. awesome. Um, I'll close with one final thing because I was thinking about this when you mentioned how little honey a bee will actually produce within its lifespan, despite all of the work it's doing and despite like, or in conjunction with like the intricacies of this entire system of a bee colony and and the life of the different types of bees, food waste really bothers me. Um, it's quite, most people might not recognize that it's actually quite a luxury to be able to walk into a grocery store and have all these choices. Like historically it's a luxury, right? But also in places in the world today in 2021, it is a luxury to have that. Um, you know, in many places it's, it's why like soups and stews are so prevalent over time because you can slowly cook something that might not be the most attractive bit and extract flavor from it. We went crabbing yesterday. We used chicken necks, right? Turkey necks are used to slowly stew greens to make greens delicious. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was just thinking like what it, cause I'm looking at the bottle of honey as you're telling me what a small amount of bee would produce and like what, like a damn shame that would be for somebody to use half a bottle and to, to chuck it mm-hmm. considering this entire miniature world happened in order <laughs> to produce that, that somebody might not know or ever think of. So that's just my little soapbox moment before closing. But uh, Jason, this is fascinating. Like you are a real treasure within this world. And like, I like, I could foresee you going on to like really educate people uh, about this industry and about bees. So that's fascinating. And thank you again for, for your time today. Well, I'm humbled by it. So thanks for having the opportunity to talk about what I'm passionate about. So I appreciate it. Cheers. Awesome. Yeah. That is a wrap on episode 234 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thanks so much to Jason for joining me on this episode. And thanks to all of you Voyagers for tuning in as always. I've got a few more episodes coming out of Maryland, and then we've got a lot of really cool stuff going on this summer. Just booked Honduras for the middle of July, so I'm trying to get some stuff set up to interview a couple of people out there and to bring you some cool stuff from Roatan, Honduras. All right, so stay tuned for all that cool stuff coming. But for now, please, please, please take care of each other, and I will catch you very soon.